You're listening to the All Truth is God's Truth program. In God's creation, all truth belongs to Him. Therefore, as Christians, we must connect all truth back to our triune God in light of His inerrant Word and His creating, sustaining, and redeeming work. I'm your host, Jared Moore. Hello, everyone. It's good to have you here again on another episode of the All Truth is God's Truth podcast. Uh, so today, what we're looking at is what does the Bible teach about slavery? And particularly, we're going to look at um, SBC President Bart Barber and his view on slavery and examine and see if what he says is biblical. So in a series of articles that Bart wrote in 2014 for the website SBC Voices, he argued that slavery is not wrong, even though much wrong has been done through slavery. He also argued that the Bible does not teach total abolition of slavery. You know, this episode, my goal is to show that slavery, people owning other people, is entirely a result of fall, a result of, of sin, and is therefore inherently sinful because it is ungodly partiality. For slavery to be good, ungodly partiality would have to be good. Now, God permitted slavery for a time with the intent of eventually abolishing it at a later date. Thus, I'm going to argue that slavery happened in biblical times for at least three reasons. Number one, the hardness of people's hearts. Two, God's judgment against his enemies. And three, God's judgment against his people. Slavery occurred among God's people in the Bible for the same reasons that divorce, polygamy, and concubinage occurred. So I tweeted quotations of Bart's articles to him, and uh, he responded. This was um, last year, 2022, uh, before the Southern Baptist Convention, and he responded by posting on his Frequently Asked Questions section on his church's website. This is what he wrote. Begin quote. He said, Repeatedly in Exodus, the theme of the story is given to us. The people are removed from servitude to Pharaoh that they may be transferred into the servitude of Yahweh. The message of the Bible is that no one is fit to be your master other than Jesus, and that is, it is inevitable that you will be the slave, the servant of someone or something. This is still God's message in Christianity. No one can become a Christian apart from declaring that Jesus is his or her Lord. Jesus is the master of every Christian. We are his servants, and the New Testament is so replete with this language that we could not possibly cite every instance in this article. So it is for that reason to commend to us our servitude to God that the Bible is not an abolitionist document with regard to slavery. The Bible does, however, serve so well to help us see that no man other than God is fit to be a master, as does any look at the history of human slavery. Even in commending to us the example of Abraham and Eliezer, I close the article by pointing out of Abraham's shameful behavior toward Hagar. The best slaveholder proves unfit to fill the role of master, end quote. So Barber says in his article that he claimed that the Bible is not an abolitionist document and that this refers to our servitude of God. But in articles he wrote in 2014, that is not what he claimed. Um, instead, you know, he, he did say that we are eternally slaves of God, 
but he did not say that this was the only reason the Bible does not teach abolition. No, Barber, he, pla he praised slavery as an institution in his articles. He said that slavery is not wrong, but that wrong can be done and has been done through slavery. So here are some quotes from Bart Barber's articles that he wrote for SBC Voices in 2014. Begin quote, Jesus nowhere advocated for the abolition of slavery. Slavery is separable from the abuses that occur under it. My position is that slavery is not wrong. Wrong can be, and often has been, done through slavery. Jesus' approbation of slavery is therefore not wrong, since slavery is not wrong. Freedom is to be preferred to slavery, but the Bible does not condemn slavery ipso facto. To eliminate slavery in a society without money, without markets, without credit, without insurance, and without any functioning government to guarantee rights and provide access to basic justice is to take away one's means of survival from people who may not have any better alternatives at their disposal. The Achilles heel of every system of slavery has been the sinful hearts of the slaveholders. When judged on its own, apart from 19th century slavery, some forms of slavery encountered in the Bible were as humane or even more humane than some practices that we readily accept in our own society today. Here's where we differ. This is still Bart Barber's quotes. You think an exegetical case can be made that Jesus really was teaching the abolition of slavery in any and all forms, albeit coyly. I find that exegetical case to be unconvincing. He goes on, he says, here's a scorecard on the ongoing dialogue. All slavery, regardless of how it is conducted, is evil. Bart says, I disagree. The New Testament position is an unequivocal repudiation of all forms of slavery. Bart says, I disagree. Slavery is wrong because it is slavery is a level above which present-day discourse rarely arises. And as the next essay will demonstrate, this is an idea diametrically opposed to the teachings of Jesus Christ. In times more primitive than ours and cultures unlike ours, slavery can serve some limited positive function that justifies its not having been abolished in biblical times. He goes on, he says, What's more, when Paul did have the power to influence a slaveholder, see the book of Philemon, rather than influencing him to abandon his slaveholding ways, he urged him to take back into slavery a runaway slave. Paul did not even hint that Philemon should emancipate Onesimus, end quote. So Bart Barber clearly said many things in his articles that contradicted what he claimed on his summary on his website was that the Bible is a non-abolition text because we are God's slaves eternally. So let me just summarize. I know that was a lot of quotes from Bart Barber, but let me just summarize what he said. He says, slavery can be separated from the abuses that occur under it, it's not wrong, but wrong can be done through it. In certain societies, slavery is, better, is a better alternative than freedom. The issue with slavery is the sinful hearts of the slaveholders, not slavery itself. The New Testament does not unequivocally repudiate all forms of slavery. Jesus does not teach that slavery is wrong because it's slavery. And in certain primitive cultures, slavery can have a limited positive function that justifies it not being abolished in biblical times. That basically summarizes his arguments. You know, all these quotes from Barber are unbiblical. Jesus repeatedly condemns ungodly partiality. And slavery is, un I mean, you can't get much worse than owning another person. 
You know, the Bible is pro-authority. It is not pro-slavery. Image bearers cannot own image bearers, and Christians especially cannot own other Christians. Barbara is also wrong about Jesus. There are many examples we could point to, but I'm just going to point to the Lord's Prayer. Jesus taught us to pray, Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Matthew 6, 9 through 10. If there's no slavery in heaven, which we know there's not, then Jesus taught us to pray for slavery to end on earth. The ending of slavery is God's will. And only must we pray, but we must work to end slavery because God will end slavery eternally when his kingdom fully comes to earth. You know, Christians do not own other Christians in heaven today, and they will not own other Christians in the new heavens and new earth either. Second, Jesus told us the two greatest commandments are to love God with all our hearts, souls, and minds, and to love our neighbors as ourselves. Matthew twenty-two thirty-seven through 39 Slavery is ungod, ungodly partiality. Why? Because it means you own another person for a specific time period, for a specific purpose. Barbara defines slavery this way, that it's any situation in which another person is not, not your parent and not as a consequence of any crime you've committed, that they gain absolute and total authority and responsibility over your economic life without paying you a monetary wage in return, end quote. You know, it's not equal image bearing, equal dignity and value, for you have a master and a slave. Barber is also wrong about the book of Philemon. The fact is that none of the scripture writers own slaves. And the clear example we have in the New Testament is Paul telling Philemon to free Onesimus. Based on Colossians 4, 9, we believe Philemon freed him, freed Onesimus, since Paul sent Onesimus to Colossae with Tychicus according to Colossians 4, 7 through 9. And Colossians was written after the book of Philemon. This is what Paul said in the book of Philemon in Philemon 1, 8 through 16. He said, Accordingly, though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, appeal to you for my child Onesimus, whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel. But I prefer to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but of your own accord. For this perhaps is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever. No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. End quote. So in verses 8 through 9, the Apostle Paul had the authority to command Philemon to forgive and free Onesimus. Ephesians two nineteen through 20. But because he loved Philemon, he appealed to him to do the godly thing instead of demanding that he do the godly thing. In verse 10, Paul calls Onesimus his own child because he led him to the Lord. The apostle um, Paul refers to other Christians he led to the Lord as his children and well, as well in 1 Corinthians uh, 4, 14 through 17. You know, Onesimus, when he was an unbeliever, evidently was not a good worker. And even though he was enslaved to pay a debt he owed to Philemon, or possibly Onesimus stole money or goods from Philemon when he ran away, according to Philemon 1.11, Yet Paul sent Onesimus back to Philemon because he respected the authority Philemon had over Onesimus. 
similar to respecting the authority of governments over citizens and foreigners. Think Romans 13, 1-7. Paul wanted to keep Onesimus with him so that Onesimus could serve him and encourage him on Philemon's behalf while he was imprisoned, according to Philemon 1, 12-13. Therefore, Paul decided to send Onesimus back to Philemon so that Philemon would free Onesimus from his debt. And so Philemon would send Onesimus back to Paul to encourage him, according to Philemon 1.14. So Paul argues that maybe something Onesimus meant for evil, God used for good in Philemon 1.15. Onesimus ran on his debt to Philemon because he was sinful and wicked, but God used his running away to bring him to his knees in repentance and faith in Christ. And Onesimus ran in rebellion, but he couldn't outrun God. In verse 16, Paul tells Philemon to take Onesimus back, no longer as a slave, but as more than that, as a beloved brother. He encourages Philemon to receive Onesimus because he is Paul's brother in the flesh and the Lord himself, which points to the reality that Paul expects Philemon to free Onesimus of his slavery and of his debt. He told Philemon to receive Onesimus in the same way he would receive Paul. He then offered to pay Onesimus' debt, even though Philemon owed Paul his very life due to him sharing the gospel with him, according to Philemon 1, 16-20. Paul even encouraged Philemon to send Onesimus back to him which would cost money. He asked much of Philemon's finances, but Philemon owed Paul more than he could give. Eternal life is of eternal value, and God used Paul to share the gospel with Philemon. Moving on from this, uh, another quote from Barber. He argues, he says, For my part, would I choose to be a slave? That depends. A slave to whom, and what are my other choices? I would much be rather be Abraham's slave, a leaser, than a lame beggar in the first century Jerusalem, an inmate in the Texas prison system, a steel worker in Andrew Carnegie's homestead mill, any lifelong minimum wage employee, an abandoned senior adult in a cheap nursing home. In some ancient Oriental societies, in fact, every citizen was considered to be a slave of the state, end quote. You know, Barber, he provides a syllogism here trying to argue positively about slavery because slavery is better than some of the things that we accept today. And look, I imagine that most women would rather be King David's concubine than King Xerxes' concubine. But that doesn't mean that David's concubinage system was biblical or holy or right. Just because there were some slave masters that were better than others doesn't mean that slavery is somehow moral. Another quote from Barber, he says, The Achilles heel of every system of slavery has been the sinful hearts of the slaveholders. Slavery is separable from the abuses that occur under it. My position is that slavery is not wrong. Wrong can be and has been done through slavery. End quote. You know, the, the Achilles heel of every system of slavery is slavery itself. We should view every system of slavery as evil because it could or would only happen in a fallen world. The fact is that there was no slavery in the Garden of Eden. And in God's cleansing of creation and in His universal flood, He ended slavery. For there was no slavery on Noah's ark. And so think about it. So when God first made all creation, there was no slavery in the Garden. And then when God recreates creation, you know, through the flood, wipes it clean and only Noah and his family are saved there's no slavery again and there's no there's not going to be there's no slavery in heaven there's not going to be any slavery in the new heavens and new earth 
And, um, you know, Barber tries to point to Scripture showing us as God's slaves as proof that slavery has inherent holiness. But the difference is in the fact that God is holy, and because He is holy and because He is other than us, He should be partial. In other words, He should prefer Himself over us. Actually, it is morally right for God to do that, but it is not morally right for us to prefer ourselves over others. And how can you own another human being without preferring yourself over him or her? You know, there's a big difference between being God's slave and us enslaving someone. You know, from Adam to Christ and in eternity as well, we'll be God's slave. But being slaves of one another is not inherently holy. Owning image bearers is not inherently holy. God owned Adam and Eve, and he owns every other human being and the rest of creation as well, since all of life comes from him, is derived from him, and he depends on nothing or no one to exist. So here's another quote from one of Barbara's articles. He says, To eliminate slavery in a society without money, without markets, without credit, without insurance, without any functioning government to guarantee rights and provide access to basic justice, is to take away one's means of survival from people who may not have any better alternatives at their disposal, end quote. I mean, it's just a full, it's a foolish, <laughs> it's a foolish paragraph. It's a foolish statement because, I mean, if there's no one to guarantee the slave's rights, a greater authority, then there's no greater authority to guarantee the slave owner's rights. It's just a foolish argument, a straw man. It actually sounds exactly like the argument against the abolition of slavery over 150 years ago. Essentially, Bart is saying that in certain societies, in certain time periods, slavery is gracious. No, Slavery did not exist in the Garden of Eden, it should not exist on earth, and it will not exist in eternity. So before Barber chimes in and says there's slavery in heaven, an actual quote from him referring to our eternal relationship to God, let me be clear here that slavery to God is holy. It is the only possible holy response from God towards his image bearers, and it's our only holy response to him, because he is greater than us. He is more worthy than us, holier than us, and everything we have is derived from Him. God is our master. We are His slaves. God is worth more than us. He is not the same as we are. But our enslaving of one another is not the same as God being our master. So let me give you the, the biblical... So we haven't looked at the Bible yet on this issue. Let me give you the biblical presentation of slavery from Scripture. So slavery was permitted in Israel for a time for the sake of abolishing it at a future date. So how do we know this? Well, in Exodus 21, verse 2, the Israelites could own one another. When they came, after they came out of Egypt, God gave them the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20. In Exodus 21, verse 2, Israelites can own one another. Slavery was all Israel knew for 400 years under Egypt. So instead of abolishing slavery when God saved His people out of Egypt, He made the system more moral until he abolished it. By the time you get to Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Israelites could no longer own one another. So let me read you Leviticus 25, verses 39 through 
through 46. If your brother becomes poor beside you and sells himself to you, you shall not make him serve as a slave. He shall be with you as a hired worker and as a sojourner. He shall serve with you until the year of Jubilee. Then he shall go out from you, he and his children with him, and go back to his own clan and return to the possession of his fathers. For they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. They shall not be sold as slaves. You shall not rule over him ruthlessly, but shall fear your God. As for your male and female slaves whom you have, you may buy male and female slaves from among the nations that are around you. You may also buy from among the strangers who sojourn with you and their clans that are with you, who have been born in your land, and they may be your property. You may bequeath them to your sons after you to inherit as a possession forever. You may make slaves of them, but over your brothers, the people of Israel, you shall not rule one over another ruthlessly, end quote. So notice that the Hebrews could not own one another because they were, they were God's servants and shall not be sold as slaves, Leviticus 25.42. So if the Bible does not teach abolition as Bart Barber claims, why did God tell Israel to abolish enslaving one another? And this is repeated similarly in Deuteronomy 15.12-18, where if a Hebrew slave is sold, he must be treated as a hired worker and can only serve six years, and in the seventh year, Jubilee, he is to be freed, and only is he to be freed, he is to be given a portion of his master's goods. So think about that for a second. Not only are slaves to be freed after seven in the seventh year, they're also to be given a portion of their master's goods. This sounds awfully like God's goal is to end slavery in Israel. Otherwise, why do you have the year of Jubilee? And why free the slaves and give them a portion of their master's good goods? The answer is so they will never have to be slaves again. Slavery, as Leviticus 25, 44-46 says, from then on, from that point forward in Israel's history, it was an act of judgment against God's enemies until the day when Christ would make one new people out of both Jew and Gentile, when Gentiles are grafted into Israel, according to Ephesians 1, 6. And if there was any slavery in Israel after that date, after Leviticus and Deuteronomy, among his people, it was due to their disobedience and or God's judgment toward them or God's judgment towards his enemies. Deuteronomy 28, 68, Nehemiah 9, 36-37. The fact is that any time Israel was owned by a foreign power, they always viewed it negatively. It didn't matter how they were treated which indicates that slavery, image bearers owning one another, is inherently evil. If slavery was, has an inherent goodness, why does the Bible always portray foreign powers owning Israelites as God's judgment or as evil? Another example of total abolition in the Bible is found in Nehemiah 5. So after being in captivity in Babylon... Nehemiah led Israel to rebuild their walls. But due to famine, the, the poor were having to mortgage their lands, sell their children into slavery, you know, to survive. But Nehemiah rebuked the nobles for enslaving their brothers, and he told them to return their fields, their vineyards, olive orchards, houses, money, grain, wine, oil, so they could live. That's in Nehemiah 5.11. If Nehemiah viewed slavery as a good or positive thing, like Bart Barber does, why did he rebuke Israel for enslaving one another? 
a practice Israel had participated in at the Exodus, in Exodus according to Exodus 21.2. If abolition of all slavery was not his goal, when nobles tried to reinstitute it, why did Nehemiah abolish it? Granted, the nobles were charging the poor interest, which was forbidden by God, but Nehemiah rebuked the slavery in particular, according to Nehemiah 5.8. Begin quote, Nehemiah says, We, as far as we are able, have bought back our Jewish brothers who have been sold to the nations, but you even sell your brothers that they may be sold to us. End quote. In other words, we've redeemed our brothers and you're selling them into slavery again. So Nehemiah forbade slavery entirely, not merely the selling of Hebrew, Hebrew slaves to foreigners. So he, Nehemiah abolished slavery in Israel. In Leviticus, God abolished slavery in Israel. And so if slavery is inherently good, why is Nehemiah abolishing it? Another example is found in Jeremiah 34. So Jeremiah prophesied to Zedekiah, the king of Judah, that he would be spared from Nebuchadnezzar's destruction of Jerusalem and Judah. Zedekiah made a covenant with the people in Jerusalem, making a proclamation of liberty, that they should set free their Hebrew slaves, male and female, so that no one should enslave a Jew his brother. Jeremiah 34, 9. The people obeyed, and they set their slaves free. But afterward, they enslaved their fellow Jews again, against their wills, according to Jeremiah 34, 10 through 11. So God's word came to Jeremiah, saying, begin quote, I myself made a covenant with your fathers when I brought them out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, saying, At the end of seven years, each of you must set free the fellow Hebrew who has been sold to you and has served you six years. You must set him free from your service. But your fathers did not listen to me or incline their ears to me. End quote. And that's Jeremiah 34, 13 through 14. As a result of their disobedience, God told them, You have not obeyed me by proclaiming liberty, every one to his brother and to his neighbor. Behold, I proclaim to you liberty to the sword, to pestilence, and to famine, declares the Lord. I will make you a horror to all the kingdoms of the earth. Jeremiah 34, 17. So again, if abolition is not God's goal in Israel and in all creation, why did God reference his year of Jubilee as abolition in Jeremiah 34? And why did he make a covenant with Israel that they would free their slaves? Why did God command it? And why did God rebuke and punish the Israelites for re-enslaving their fellow Hebrews? So that's, that's what the Bible says as far as the Old Testament. One secular proof that the Bible is pro-abolition is the Slave Bible. Now, the Slave Bible was a Bible printed by a missionary society that was seeking to win slaves to Christ without making their masters angry, and this was in the early 1800s. There are only three of these that are known to exist today. One is currently on display in the Museum of the Bible in Washington, D.C., what they did was they printed the Bible and it removed 90% of the Old Testament and 50% of the New Testament. They removed all the passages in the Bible that spoke of being free from slavery and the ones that spoke against man-stealing. They also removed the entire book of Revelation, which emphasizes an eternal kingdom of freedom under the lordship of Christ, where there is neither slave nor free, only people who are one in Christ Jesus for all eternity. You know, Barber says that there's nothing in the Bible that gives a clear abolitionist message. If that's true, 
Why did the slave owners only permit their slaves to have Bibles that had 90% of the Old Testament removed and 50% of the New Testament? I think we know the answer to that, right? Furthermore, concerning the New Testament, none of the New Testament Scripture writers owned slaves, and we see the clear example in Philemon from earlier, Paul telling him to set his slave free because he is his fellow Christian. Also in 1 Corinthians 7, 21-24, this is what the Apostle Paul wrote. He says, Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it. But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a free man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. So, brothers, in whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God, end quote. So Paul is clear that in the first century, if you were a slave when you became a Christian, don't worry about it. But if you can be freed, do it. Well, why? Because you're already free in Christ. You already belong to Christ, and you're his free man. Your allegiance is to Christ, not to a mere man who says he's your master. And if you are a free man, realize you are a slave of Christ. Why? Because your allegiance belongs to him. He's greater than us, more valuable than us. He is our master, and we are his slaves. And finally, in Mark chapter 10, 2 through 9, when Jesus was asked about divorce by the Pharisees, he appealed to Adam and Eve to argue that divorce is wrong because God designed marriage from the beginning to be a lifelong covenant between one man and one woman. Jesus also argued that God permitted divorce in Israel because of the hardness of their hearts. And that's in Mark 10, 2 through 5. By appealing to Adam and Eve's marriage as the basis for all God-glorifying marriages, Jesus also rejected flippant divorce, polygamy, concubinage, homosexuality, etc. Is it not also reasonable to point out that not only was there no divorce in the Garden of Eden, but there was no slavery? And not only this, but after God cleansed the world of evil through the universal flood, after Noah got off the ark, there was no slavery either. There was no divorce, there was no polygamy, there was no concubinage, and there was no slavery. So in conclusion, image bearers should not own image bearers. Slavery is entirely a result of the fall and is not God's design for mankind. The Bible being pro-authority should not be mistaken for being pro-slavery. There was no slavery in the Garden of Eden. There was no slavery on Noah's Ark. There was no slavery of God's people in the Promised Land. Only if God's people were in sin or being judged or as an act of judgment against God's enemies, and there will be no slavery in the new heavens and new earth. God said to abolish slavery. God said to abolish... um, Let's see here. God said to abolish Israelites owning one another in Leviticus 25, 39-46... Nehemiah forbade the enslaving of Hebrews in Nehemiah 5, and God did too in Jeremiah 34. And Paul told Philemon to receive Onesimus, begin quote, No longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. That's Philemon 1, 16-17. And Philemon did just that, and we know that because... Onesimus is a free man in Colossians 4, 7-9. Finally, Jesus told us to pray for God's will to be the same on earth as it is in heaven, and he told us to love God with all our hearts, souls, minds, and our neighbors as ourselves. 
Just as the new covenant left divorce, polygamy, and concubinage on the ash heap of history, it also left slavery on the ash heap of history as well. These realities overwhelmingly prove that Bart Barber is wrong about slavery in the Bible. The Bible is pro-abolition of all slavery. It is not pro-slavery because we should not own one another for we are owned by Christ and God and only God has a right to own image bearers. Listeners, I appreciate you tuning into this episode. I hope you found it beneficial. Um, I want to encourage you to check out my YouTube channel. You can find me at Dr. Jared Moore. And also to check me out on Twitter, you can follow me at Jared H. Moore. That's my handle. Also check out my book. Um, I'm a co-author of a book called The Pop Culture Parent, Helping Kids Engage Their World for Christ. And um, also I have two books coming out this year dealing with the subject of same-sex attraction being sin and how to help people who are battling those sins to enjoy Christ, to come to salvation, and to fight those desires and enjoy God forever. Um, I want to encourage you to uh, check out my Patreon as well if you've appreciated uh, this episode, and I hope you've enjoyed it. And um, Look me up on on Twitter or on the YouTube where this is posted, the YouTube channel, and um, ask any questions. Feel free to ask any questions, and I'll do my best to provide biblical answers. Thank you. Persuaded, united, I see the Savior, I see His grace is amazing, I persevere to the end.